I'm strong. I can get through anything. I thought that would be the worst thing I would ever encounter. I wish it was. <laughs> there was more to come. There was more to come. And when you say that God only gives you what you can handle. And I always thought when you had suffered a great loss, when something hard had happened in your life that you had paid your dues. We don't ever anticipate to be hit with that blow more than once in a single lifetime on this earth and have to be still and go into grief a second time. But you did. Inspired, informative, and entertaining. This broadcast is brought to you by Women in Christian Leadership. Welcome to It's Her Story, a weekly broadcast featuring women who inspire us to be the best versions of ourselves, bringing the heart, the soul, and the brilliance of women to the forefront by sharing their unique stories. I'm your host, Karen Colonna, engaging guests to share their stories of how God has led them to it, delivered them through it, and prepared them for it. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of It's Her Story. I am Karen Colonna, and tonight I have Kim VC joining me. Kim currently serves as the Executive Director of Ohio's Hospice in Dayton, and she has spoken at state and national hospice conferences and also given a TED Talk entitled First Breath and Final Breath, where she helps uh, to share the story of how people um, cross over into their final phase um, of life. She is also an award-winning author um, and has created a resource a website called What Cloud Grief Resources. She founded the company to sell her children's books and coordinate her national speaking events on topics such as facing the end of life, death, grief, forgiveness, faith, and difficult times, and hope. Today, we will have Kim share with us her story on how she found hope in the darkest of times and how she translated that into a beautiful purpose-driven passion to help others facing loss. Kim, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, it's an honor and a privilege to be here with you. Thank you. I'm really excited about being able just to talk about how God's been such an instrumental part and driven my life. Well, you, you definitely have a story, a testimony to share that will bring so much peace, hope, light to those that are listening. And I shared in an earlier episode that sometimes I want to look to God and say, uh, you know, I know you said you only dole out what we can handle, but I've had my share and you have had your share. And Absolutely. I am hoping that, uh, that our guest will see how you have risen above and chosen to march on and just the gifts that have come from such hardship and pain. As we start today, tell us a little bit about what led you at, you know, right now you serve as the executive director at Ohio's Hospice of Dayton, but you started off in a very different role there many years ago. I did. In 1985, I started as a, a hospice nurse taking care of patients in their home. Um, and what, um, what sacred work that is, you know, being with families at the end of life of someone they love. You know, it's a very critical time in their life. It's a hard time. And they invite us in and allow us to be present when there's such intimacy. It's just very sacred. I knew that's what I wanted to do. And I'm not sure why. I think looking back, God put that on my heart clearly as it prepared me for what I had in my life. Well, God has this habit, <clears throat> this way of knowing 
where we're going. And I look at grief and pain and challenge sometimes as another level of preparedness. He only puts us in positions where we are uh, equipped. And it's interesting when you were sharing about being in people's homes, I shared a little bit about the journey with my daughter when we were talking before we started today and we had home care come in. It wasn't hospice. It was for pediatrics. And those nurses became such a part of our family. And it's such an intimate part of our journey. If it weren't for them, something which ended up being a beautiful moment could have been a very scary, fearful, and stressful moment. But um, it is, it takes a very special person to be able to guide somebody and their family through the end of life. Mm-hmm. And what would you say? were the signs from God to you that this was the path you were supposed to pursue? It was like he just said it to me. It was one day I knew I wanted to be a nurse and I'm in nursing school. And then all of a sudden it was clarified to say, I want to be a hospice nurse. And to be a hospice nurse, you had to have some nursing experience. So I went to the hospital when I graduated and I got a year of nursing experience. And I took care of this one gentleman we're both short. He was short too. So we, what I was, I was his night nurse. And on this one particular Saturday night, he called me in about two thirty, and I went in, and he said to me, "Kim, I'm going to die tonight." And I looked at him and I thought, my nurse brain's going already. Like, well, you're talking to me. You just told me you have to go to the bathroom. Your kidneys are working. You know, it, it doesn't look like you're going to die to me. But I'd already come to understand that to listen, right? To listen and to hold space with somebody when they say something like that. So I thought, okay, I take him to the bathroom. We come back and he says, I'm so scared. I don't want to die alone. And so I called his wife and she wasn't able to come in because they didn't have a car and it was late at night. And so I decided, I, I told him I'd stay in his room with him as much as I could, except when I had to go check on my other patients. And about 4.30 in the morning, I got a, someone called out and they needed a pain shot. So I stepped out to give a pain shot. When I came back, he had died. And I was devastated. I felt like I had let this man down. He didn't want to be alone. And yet he was. And I went home that morning in tears. And I said to my husband, it's time. God's made it clear to me, I'm supposed to go to hospice now. And back in the day, right, it used to be in the newspaper. So Sunday morning, I'm opening up the newspaper and there's a full-time hospice nurse job in the ads. So Monday morning, I call. I go that day at one o'clock, honest to God, vivid memory of this. I go to the interview. I interview with one person, then a second person, then a third person. I'm offered the job. And in two weeks, I'm there starting my orientation. I've got goosebumps. Yeah, it was clear. It was preordained by God. At the time, I didn't know that. I didn't recognize that. I just thought it was me, right? I've decided, you know, God decided it was time for me to go to the hospice. And I do it in honor of God and that dear little man that that gave me the little nudge to do this. Well, when he closed his eyes that night, you were there. You gave him the gift of knowing somebody was close and somebody would, mm-hmm. would sit next to him and share that moment. When I think about Sometimes God whispers, sometimes he sends a handwritten note, sometimes he's screaming from the mountaintops, 
And it's mm -hmm. funny because in the throes of whatever we're living with, dealing with, we don't always see it until we look back. And it's blatantly clear. Absolutely. And I think sometimes I look for God's direction, right? You know, what am I supposed to do, God? You know, where am I supposed to be? I, I, I don't understand, right? Why am I going through this too, right? And I found for me, when I'm starting to feel like God isn't there, right? Suddenly there's this void and he's not there. What I've come to understand now is that for me, it's not that he's not there. It's that he's gone deeper and I've gone deeper, you know? So the be still and know that I am God has become a real mantra for me, especially in times of fear and times of stress and times of sadness um, to just get quiet and listen, you know? And I, when I can get deep, down into myself and get connected with him that's when things are revealed and that's when amazing things really do happen well and that's when your faith has to be the strongest because to be still means you have to surrender yeah. and it is in that surrender where his magic is revealed to us but absolutely it's the stillness. I struggle. It is one of my greatest struggles. I do not like to be still. I'm a runner for a reason. I like to move. I'm an injured runner, which has been uh, a challenge for me because that is how I pray. That is how I really spend my time communicating with God is when I'm alone on the street somewhere, but that is movement. So it's funny because it's an oxymoron. My my stillness is movement, but I've had to learn very much probably in this last few years of my life, what being still really means and the grace that has come through when I am still, it, it has given me that 2020 vision. Here you find yourself in this career, helping families through this journey. And you did not know when you stepped into those shoes back in 1980s that you would be on the other side of that journey later in your life. I didn't. And so, you know, imagine for 21 years, I'd been caring you know, for patients and families and being involved in leadership at hospice. And, you know, I had profound life altering experiences. A patient who said to me one day, you know, don't let little things stress you out. If something's bothering you, ask yourself, is this going to matter on the day that I die, right? Profound wisdom early in my career. I watched families have to say a painful goodbye to their loved one, right? Some people chose not to be forthright, not to be honest about what was happening and, and you know, just be present but not share. There were other families that were profoundly honest and intimate in that experience. And I learned from that. So when my husband was diagnosed with metastatic colon cancer, he was 48. Our kids were 17 and 19. And he had no health issues, you know, very active. He was my soulmate, the love of my life. And we planned to grow old together. So when he was first diagnosed with colon cancer, we thought, okay, very treatable. You're young, no family history, go get the surgery and we go on with our lives. Well, two days later, we learned that it was widely metastatic. 
and that wasn't going to be how this played out. So he had a tough hospital course, about two months of in and out of the hospital. We spent our last Christmas together in the hospital. You know, it just wasn't the way we wanted it to be. We got him home finally in January, and it was clear that he wasn't going to do well. When we told our kids that he was diagnosed with cancer that first night, we looked at our daughter, who was a senior in high school, and said, and don't worry, Sarah, I'll be there for your graduation in June. Who knows why that slip came out of his mouth, but that's what he said, and it was clear that wasn't going to happen. So when hospice got involved, he shared that with the hospice team, and they pulled together a graduation very quickly. The superintendent bestowed upon her her diploma, and he was there and watching this, and, and she pumped her arm, and she went over, and she kissed him and said, we made it, Dad. He died two weeks later in our home. We were able, we went that intimate, honest approach to it, right? There were times in the evening, he and I would just lie there in our bed and be talking about how sad we both were, that we had this great love for each other, and we were blessed with an incredible love, an incredible life, right? And when you have great things like that, then when they're not there, you have great loss and great grief, right? So we shared the pain of that. We cried together and we were sad and we named what he wasn't going to be there to see. Our kids graduate, our kids go to college, our kids get married, our kids have babies. You know, that just wasn't fair, but we named it and we shared that. And there was a real beautiful sacredness and intimacy in that. And that was a gift that we gave each other, right? So as his condition worsened, right? Obviously, he was near the end of life, and the kids were there with me, and, you know, I had done this work for many years, so I saw it. I knew we were moments away and said to the kids, you guys, I think dad's going now, and we just each have a, a moment to tell him we loved him, and we were all holding him, and I just can't think of a better send-off for him, right? He left our arms and into the arms of, you know, Jesus, right? We handed him back, and... um it was hard and there was great grief, right? It wasn't easy. So I don't mean to make it sound like it's all wonderful. It wasn't, it wasn't. But as I look back on that, there was beauty. And it's something I cherish now that we share that. And my children, our children share that with him too. I had a similar experience when Caroline passed away. She was at home and I held her, I felt the last beat of her heart and the sun was coming in through the skylight over the bed. It was six 34 in the morning and her father was sitting right next to me. And I thought the same exact, the words that you just used, I held her the first moment she breathed and I held her the last and I handed her back to Jesus that it, it was excruciatingly painful but I would not have chose it any other way. But that moment, it is a gift. And it's so hard sometimes for people to understand the word gift at such a horribly sad time, but it really was. And so I think of all of the years that you helped bring that gift to the families who did not know how much that they would value the gift in the way that they do. And then it prepared you to be able to savor every moment that you had. You were then able to take that experience and help others, other women who had to face the grief of losing 
their soulmate, their spouse, their partner? You know, it was um, a really tough time. And, you know, I found myself during this process thinking, you know, I'd rather have had the life and the love that I did and faced the grief that I was going through than to have played it safe and not have those things, right? And avoided the pain, right? I, you know, I would not have chose that option. Um, so after Les died, I was, um, I became aware of a support group locally for young widows, widows under 50. And so I began attending it as a, as a young widow. And after a couple of years of attending it, and I just met people with incredible stories. And, um, you know, some had very young children and some were pregnant with their children when their husbands died unexpectedly. It was just, everybody has their story, right? And uh, so after a few years of being a participant, I was asked to help facilitate the group. And so for 10 years, I did. Oh my gosh, what a privilege to be with them and just hold space, right? Hold space for their pain and give them a place where they could come and be their real self, right? They didn't have to act any certain way. If they needed to cry, if they needed to yell, sometimes they just sobbed. They couldn't even give word to it yet. All those things were okay because everybody in that room understood. Everybody understood without them even saying anything. And when you have a grief so big, the world around you wants to help. They so want to support you. But people don't often know what to say. And sometimes they avoid you. And that that question, how are you today? How are you doing? Nobody really wants the true answer because if we gave them that true answer, they would cower behind the, the power of that grief. But in a support group environment like that, nobody has to even, sometimes they don't have to say anything. Just being there because the person sitting next to you feels that pain um, and they can offer a support that nobody else can. So he was your, he was your other half. We planned to grow old together and clearly that wasn't going to happen. God had a different plan. And I'm sure in the moment, as you sat there through that, that period of time after, it's very hard for us to sit there and go, well, I know God has a plan. I don't know about <laughs> you, but for me, I had some choice words for God and they were not nice ones. And some of them had four letters. I really was not a good Christian for a while. And I thought I had lost my faith until I looked back many years later and saw and that he truly was present every day. And he knew I wasn't going to be far away, but it would take time for me to see and understand and be able to walk those steps with faith. How did you take the pain, the anger? What did the next step, the next phase look like? You know, I, I mean, someone who doesn't experience anger very often, right? I mean, it's just not something I, I really, it's not an emotion that I have a lot of. So I, I don't even know if I could use the word anger. I was too strong. I think I was hurt. Almost like, God, how could you do this, you know? I have tried to live a good life, you know, right? All the things that we, our human mind rationalizes, right? I, I've done the mass. I keep Sunday school. I've been on parish council. I'm a Eucharistic minister. I mean, I talk about God and his role in my life so much. And 
you know, and you gave me this great love. How could you take him back? Right? So it was more like I was hurt by it. And I remember sitting with my priest in church one day. I was just, he and I were talking and we went over and felt um, in front of the crucifix, right? In the church I had, go to has this profound crucifix and we're sitting there and I just blurted it out. I said, you know, I feel as much connection and love for God as I do. And I patted the pew. I said, as I do this wooden pew. If you, and, and, and I started to cry because I couldn't believe I had revealed that to our priest who I just love dearly. And he said to me, and that surprises you, why? It just gave me permission that it was okay, right? Of course, grief was over, you know, over everything, right? And it was changing how I saw the world, every aspect of the world. And what I found as I look back, as I didn't lose my faith, it was there. But remember what I said, it goes deeper. For me, I've got to get deeper. So I had to get through the grief, right? And you do, you have to go through it. You cannot bury it and think it's gonna go away. It does not. It kind of, it kind of uh, becomes, um, it, it, it abscesses if you bury it, right? It's not a good thing. So you have to go through the grief. And what used to bring you joy, right? When you think about it and you're grieving brings you pain. Those memories of good times hurt and they cause you to cry and they cause, cause you to hurt. But in time, those same memories begin to bring a fondness, right? To give you the opportunity to reconnect with that love, to reconnect with the joy that the experience brought you initially. And so I found that the same thing happens with faith. When the grief is raw, faith is hard to even give voice to. And yet, as the grief dissipates, the faith is becoming sometimes even stronger, right? And uh, it, it's a strength. And it showed me, because like you said, people always say, God never gives you anything, you know, more than you can handle. Baloney. <laughs> I didn't believe that when I was going through it, right? But afterwards, I looked back, I thought, I am woman, a woman of faith hear me roar, right? I mean, I knew I was strong and not in an arrogant way, but in a, a way that was like with God on my side, right? I'm strong, I can get through anything. I thought that would be the worst thing I would ever encounter. I wish it was. <laughs> there was more to come. There was more to come. And when you say that God only gives you what you can handle, and I always thought when you had suffered a great loss, when something hard had happened in your life that you had paid your dues. We don't ever anticipate to be hit with that blow more than once in a single lifetime on this earth and have to be still and go into grief a second time. But you did. We have two children, our son, Patrick, um, who's now 35. He was 19 when his dad died. And our daughter, um, who was 17, like I said, when her dad died. Um, and so Sarah always had very severe asthma and, you know, was in and out of the hospital a lot as a child throughout her entire childhood and into adulthood. And um, we knew what to do, right? It happened frequently. We knew how to manage it. We got through the crisis. You know, she might be in the hospital. She might be in the intensive care unit, but it always resolved. On this particular day, um, she and I and her three-year-old son, Warren, my grandson, were together and she said, you know, 
I'm kind of itchy. I'm going to take a shower. So she, she had to, with her asthma and stuff, have skin, you know, um, rashes and itchiness and such. So she called out to me and said she was having a bad asthma attack and couldn't breathe. Okay. We started the breathing treatments, you know, didn't seem to be helping. Started a second one, still didn't seem to help. So she asked for epinephrine. So I got that. And, you know, picked up the phone, called 911, unlocked the front door, went to the bedside, gave the epinephrine, and it still wasn't helping. When the squad got there, you know, she was still conscious and talking, and I told her what, told them what was going on. And I decided to pick up her three-year-old son, because I could tell she wasn't doing well. A few moments later, they came out, and she was unconscious, and she was gray, and they quickly took her out of the home and into the back of the ambulance. And but she was obviously very sedated now and medicated on that ventilator with going into the intensive care unit and was still at this point considered unstable. So even in that time, at that moment, I didn't imagine that she would die. She always had come through, right? So that started a 22-day um, experience of being in the hospital and, and, uh, you know, having hope that she was going to get better. The hardest part for me was watching her, her brother, Patrick, right? So he'd lost his dad at 19. Now he was losing his baby sister, right? And so my grief was as much about losing Sarah as it was watching Patrick struggle with losing his sister. And um, that last night where we knew things were bad, he stayed with me at the hospital and the three of us were together. And... Um, it was clear she was not going to survive. So um, that day we had lots of family in and out, just being supportive and kind and present to us. And, and so I went into her room, I put the side rail down, scooted the chair over and interlocked our hands. And um, I was so tired, I hadn't slept that night. And I dozed off and about, 625, the nurse came in and tapped me and she said, she's gone. You know, and I was like, oh, I so wanted to be awake. And then I just, I don't know, I just had this peace. I felt like God said, she didn't want you to be awake. She slipped out while you were sleeping. You know, and I had this image of her going into the arms of both her dads, right? Her heavenly father and her earthly father who was there. It, it made it it made it clear to me that why he had to go early and first. So he'd be there to walk him out of the girl. You know, and that image, as emotional as it was, was also comforting to me. I think as I look back at that, even in the hospital, those three weeks, there were times, and I've learned to look for these, Little moments, little blessings now. Moments, God winks, people sometimes call them. I was there and the nurses had come in and had like washed her hair with that no rinse shampoo, right? And they began to braid her hair. And I, I said, oh, can I braid her hair, please? Because we used to braid it when she was a little girl. And I just, I wanted to braid her hair again. You know, I hadn't done her hair in years because she was 29 years old at this point. So there was four or five times during her stay there that I got to braid her hair. It was a simple thing. I'm glad I asked for it. And I've learned that along the way, right? If there's something in your soul that says, do this, listen. Is it God? 
for me, it's gone often, right? It's telling me that. But that now, as I think back, it just warms my heart that I got to braid my baby's hair again, right? Um, before she left. When you talk about God winks, they're, they're everywhere, but you have to be still enough to hear them or to see them. Be still and know that I'm God. Be still and know that I am God. And here you find yourself with all of this behind you and within you. And God came to you yet again during a stillness. Where did he take you next, Kim? Well, he put on my heart that children grieve deeply and there's not a lot out there for the average person right moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas to know how to support grieving kids and to be completely honest with you that happened about two weeks before I was leaving for um, um, the holy land with our priest and several people from three different parishes in the area and I was annoyed I don't want to do this. I don't want to write a book, you know, leave me alone. That's kind of where I was at, right? And so I finally challenged him. And I said, fine, if this is you talking, if this is your desire for me, then you prove it to me in the Holy Land. I challenged him. Oh my gosh. You threw out a a weak moment. That was a human, weak human moment, right? I'm challenging. No. (laughs) <laughs> you you threw out a fleece you laid it out in front of him and said if this is what you are asking of me show me and when we throw a fleece we open our hearts and our souls to accept the answer he gives us and you I, said i hadn't thought that part through right <laughs> so i get to the holy land and our priest says to me like the day before this particular event, we were going to Gethsemane, right? The Garden of Gethsemane, to where Jesus prayed at the rock, right? And sweat blood and said, you know, God, please let this pass, this cup pass me, right? But if it's your will, may your will be done. Father Dave says, if you can't do this, it's okay to say no, but I would like you to do the homily at tomorrow's mass. I'm like, wow. I need to think about that. I need to pray about that. I ended up doing the homily, telling the story and talking about how, God, please, please, if it's at all possible, please give Sarah life again, give her breath, but do it in a way that she can be a good mom, right? Take good care of Warren, be a good wife, right? Um, But if that's not your will, then I beg of you to give us the strength to get through this. That was the prayer that I had that last week of Sarah's life. The remainder of the trip, we had about five days left of the trip, and four of the people in the group, there were lots of people in the group I didn't know before we journeyed together, but four different people of those folks came to me the remainder of the trip and said, you know, I don't know why. I feel really compelled to say to you, you're supposed to write a children's book about grief. Swear to God. That 
That's God screaming from the mountaintops. Yes. And I was like, gosh, darn it. <laughs> right? So, Have you ever written anything before? No, not like a book, no. I mean, I had journaled before and things like that for my own sake, but no, I never written a book. No. So we got back. The first day I was catching up on like sleep and jet lag. The second day I sat down at the computer and I literally wrote the first draft of the book in about two hours. It just poured out. I didn't have a storyline. I didn't have characters. I didn't have anything when I sat down. But when the time is right and it's meant to be, it just does. Right. I mean, that was totally God. That wasn't me. That was totally God. I become, and I realized this looking back at my hospice career, even there were times that things were so profoundly awful, right? Unfair, sad. I didn't have words. There were not words in the human vocabulary that I could put together to be comforting. And yet, after a pause, these profound words came through me. And I even noticed it didn't sound like my voice. God had begun to use me as a vessel and I give him all the glory for that I mean that's not me but that's how I look at these books so now the first book was what cloud is my mommy in and it's a storybook about a turtle whose mommy dies and he goes through that whole first year afterwards of learning how to live without her but the book provides many opportunities and ideas on how to through sharing of the grief with the adults in his life together they process their grief and they remember their mom and they pretty much engrave the memories then on their heart, right? So they have them forever. The book actually won an award. It won the Christian Indie Award in 2021 for children's books, ages four to eight. So that was just a huge honor. And what I love about it is it helps me keep Sarah's memory alive, right? And, and Les's memory, my husband too, because there's a daddy book. The young widow said, well, you can't just write a book about mommy. We need a book about daddy. And then, of course, came grandma and grandpa. And Sarah's pediatric pulmonologist, when he learned of the book, says, well, we need a sibling book. Because we have kids at the hospital that die and their siblings, we don't know how to help them. You know, people just struggle to help them. So the sister and brother book are currently at the publishers. Um, the reviews that I get um, are profoundly personal and deep. What people write about Thank you so much. This is the first time my daughter smiles since her daddy died eight weeks ago, right? It gave us the opportunity to together remember her mom, those kinds of things. And it's just like, thank you, God, the books are doing what we, he and I attended. You have survived journeys some of us will pray every day we never have to face. And through that hard journey, God gave you a gift. He anointed you with a message to share. So you own award-winning author because it's through <laughs> that accomplishment that you will continue to reach lives, young lives, old lives, people who need help, who need a lifeline to survive their grief. And your journey to the other side of grief has made that gift available to them. 
Thank you, Karen. I mean, I do believe that. And one thing I've really come to understand is all that we learn through some of the greatest and most awful challenges in our life. As we look back, those learnings, those oftentimes blessings, right, are not just for us. That is clear to me. I learned so much through the death of my husband and my grief work with that. And then through the death of my daughter and that grief work. And then trying to be supportive of my grieving son, right? Who just is beside himself. And I, that learning, what I've learned from those experiences wasn't just for me. It was to be shared, to help other people. And so that's what really has the support group, the books, right? The speaking, um, those are all my way of saying thank you to a, to a God that's massive and, and incredible and uh, forever loving, forever giving and forever there, even when we can't feel him. Even when we think we've been abandoned. You said something that I just want to make a quick comment about. You said you had prayed and prayed and prayed that she would, heal right and be cured early in my hospice career chaplain shared with me you know we pray for healing and and you know we have to realize god heals in two ways sometimes it's an earthly cure and he takes the disease from the body but sometimes god grants a heavenly cure he takes the body from that awful disease and that's what i saw happen with both my husband and my daughter god did heal them he took them away from those awful diseases and all the suffering that went with them. And that's something that I needed to be grateful for. He didn't let me down. He, he, it was not that he wasn't there for me or he didn't hear my prayers. It's just the healing they got was a little different than the one I was hoping for. He answered the prayers just in a different way. I did. Kim, you inspire. Your comments are like a warm hug that just help bring comfort to what we feel, what we are experiencing. I'm sure the words in the books you write to the people who read them, it brings them hope, it brings them comfort. So Kim, thank you so much for sharing all of your journey with us today, for sharing what cloud .net with us. Hopefully folks who are looking for a guide to the journey of grief for their loved ones will stop by, pick up a turtle and a beautiful message that they can share to help them through a difficult time. And we hope everybody will be back to join us next time for another message on It's Her Story. Thank you for listening to It's Her Story. I'm your host, Karen Colonna, bringing the heart, the soul, and the brilliance of women to the forefront through their unique stories. If you have a story that you'd like to share, if you'd like to learn more, visit us online at womeninchristianleadership.com. Subscribe so that you don't miss our brilliant lineup of guests. We hope that you'll join us next time for another episode of It's Her Story, brought to you by Women in Christian Leadership, a Jeannie Porter production.